Why choose a Sleep Number smart bed? Because no two people sleep the same. Only the Sleep Number smart bed lets you each choose your individual firmness and comfort your Sleep Number setting. The Climate 360 smart bed is so smart, it actively cools or warms up to 13 degrees on either side for your ideal sleep temperature. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number special edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. To find a store near you, visit sleepnumber.com. and welcome to the Parentologist Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Kim. The Parentologist Podcast is a show about everything parenting with a therapeutic twist. I have a doctor in psychology and am a licensed marriage and family therapist, a registered play therapist, university professor, writer, and mom of two. Each episode of the Parentologist Podcast focuses on a variety of topics related to parenting, family, children, and mental health. I'm glad you're here. On today's episode, we have Dr. Sean Horn, who is a licensed psychologist, author, podcaster, media medical expert, and TEDx speaker. In addition to her private practice, she serves as faculty and clinical supervisor at the University of Washington Medical School, is the host of the Inspired Living podcast, and a medical expert panelist on the TV show Uncovered. With over two decades of experience in the mental health field, she is now bringing the wisdom of the therapy room to you on her online inspired living school, where she helps you heal from shame with emotional sobriety so you can live wholeheartedly. Wow, Dr. Horn, thank you so much for being here today. <laughs> thank you, Kim. I'm so happy to be here. This is great. Yeah, I'm, I've been wanting to talk to you for some time because I know you have a specialty, if you will, when it comes to shame and shame in parenting, which mm-hmm. uh, I know I've seen in my practice and I'm sure you've seen in yours. And um, I would really love to educate uh, you know, the listeners today on you know, what it is, where it comes from, how we can identify it as parents and what we can do about it. So let's start off you know, just sharing you know, what shame is. Sure. We often are talking about shame, but we use other language to describe it. So when we use words like perfectionism, people pleasing, and social anxiety, things along those lines, we are talking about shame. Those are um, symptoms or outcomes of being affected by toxic shame. So let's break this down. We're going to start with guilt. Guilt is what we feel when we violate our standards. It's an inner conviction. Shame Mm. is what we feel when we violate or when I violate your standards. It comes with social correction. Toxic shame is what I come to believe about who I am when I violated your standards. So let's say, for example, a kid goes and they steal something at the store And then they come home and they feel really bad, like, oh, I shouldn't have done that bad thing. And they don't want anyone to know. But the parents find out and the parents come up to that child and say, you did this bad thing. And we have to go back and return this to the store clerk. So they go back to the store and then the store clerk is so angry with them and has a strong reaction to them. In that experience of standing in front of a parent and the store clerk and receiving their anger and disapproval, that child experiences the social correction that comes with shame. Now, if that kid continues to be reminded that you did a bad thing because you are bad, you're a bad boy, a bad girl, you are a thief, then that child will blend their identity with their behavior And now develop a core belief about who they are, that somehow they're fundamentally flawed, they're fundamentally defective, something's wrong with them. And that's the message of toxic shame. And often when you hear people talk about shame, like Brene Brown and other shame psychology specialists, we are addressing toxic shame because we want to heal that in people's lives. That is what oppresses us. And when we hold toxic shame, we use specific strategies to protect ourselves from having that exposed. So that's how we keep ourselves safe. So perfectionism is one method we we use to keep ourselves safe or people-pleasing. And so we will use those strategies to make sure we never, ever feel shame again. So it goes from conviction 
correction, condemnation. The correction part is what we want. Shame is very unique in that it's a very strong message of stop, stop now. It's not you shouldn't do it. It's that's dangerous. This behavior that you're doing, this feeling, this whatever it is, uh, is going to hurt you or it's going to hurt other people. And therefore, you need to stop immediately. And so when parents would say things like, shame on you, they're in, in, an, in uh, like a traditional setting, they're kind of saying, feel that conviction because you want that kid to have an internal consciousness that alerts them that no, it's not okay to steal. It's not okay to lie. It's not okay to hurt somebody. And then when we know that they have now adopted that value, we have a sense of comfort in knowing that they'll do make good choices when we're not around. We don't want to say shame on you to a kid. You know, we don't want to do that. But that's what we're hoping for is that they have that conviction that will inform their choices and inform their behavior. And then we know that they're going to be safe in the world, so to speak. But toxic shame is is not what we want our children to have because that will hinder them throughout life and create a lot of problems for them. Right, right. So my next question is going to be, you know, how do we balance that? But before we go on to that, you know, I, I, when you were saying your example earlier, I was thinking about the times where my little four-year-old preschooler will do something wrong or something he's not really probably supposed to do, whatever that is, X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. And then I might get upset. I may have a, 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 maybe a negative reaction to it because he essentially did something he wasn't supposed to do. And then he'll start crying and say, I'm a bad boy. I'm such a bad boy. And I will stop in that moment. And I, even if I'm upset and know that he did do something wrong, I will stop him and I will say, no, you were not a bad boy. You just made a bad choice or you just made a bad decision. Is that something mm -hmm. that's helpful? Is that if I'm, am I doing something that is, is helping him not receive that toxic shame? Yes, we definitely want to separate our identity from the behavior or the circumstance. And so we begin with our emotion coaching of children when they're small. We're coaching them on how, why that is a bad behavior, what to do differently, how to manage those situations. So they hit another kid because they want a turn. And we say, stop. It's not okay to use your hands to hit. Use your words. Say, may I have a turn when you're done? Or you say, okay, you're not being safe with the kids, so come stand by my side until you can be safe. We're going to have a, I call it hip, um, a hip timeout. You have them stand by your side. This is a good method for uh, blending attachment theory with um, behavior modification. So instead of time out where they have to go away, you time in, they come into you and kids will act like you're torturing them. And you just think, why is this so devastating? You know, they'll be like, no, they're just like... Some, they just are, do not want to be in your presence. And that is because of that conviction they feel, but afterwards they are really happy and they're very affectionate. It's really quite striking to try this with your kids. And it's the same method with timeout. You do it with, uh, like three at, at the age of three, you do three minutes, age of five, five minutes, something like that. So you're, you're coaching them on their behavior and you're helping them identify what they're feeling and what they need and want. And then we're equipping them in that way. But when we make these big blanket statements, that's bad. Then, well, what is, what, what, what was that? They, they really don't know how to put it together. They kind of figure it out eventually, but we want to give them that guidance and make that separation. If we don't, if we link their behavior with who they are, this is where as an adult, it can ultimately lead to suicidal thinking. Because when a person is in a circumstance or they're having a problem, they won't see the situation as the problem. They'll link it to their identity. So it's, it's me that's the problem. It's my life that's the problem. So if I want this problem to change, then I need to change my life, you know, that kind of thing. So that's why it's so important that we begin early and just really give them that message like, I love you, but this behavior is unacceptable. And it's okay to be angry because that's what they're going to get in the world. You know, we're modeling and giving them information about how to adult eventually, right? So if they don't go to school, well, that's like not going to work. If you don't do your responsibilities, you'll get fired. So we're, we're preparing them for that real life. And if we're sheltering them, 
then they won't develop the grit and the resilience that they'll need to navigate in the adult world. So what we're doing is we're saying, you know, this is, you're going to have very strong reactions if you do this. This is not okay. It breaks our rules. And so we need to stop that. But I love you and you're okay. We just need to make better choices. So that is exactly right what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Right. Good. Well, good. Thank you. And I like the education piece. I like the the detail-oriented piece of the education where you're telling them exactly in an authentic way, because as you said, the world is going to be authentic. And if something goes wrong, someone's going to be upset. And so they have to learn how to deal with that. Like you said, with the resilience and the grit as they, as they grow older. Um, Mm -hmm. But I, but I like, I love the time in, honestly, actually I used to work for schools and I would um, train playground supervisors to not um, give a punitive consequence to a child. So let's say, for example, a child threw up some trash on the ground and then they mm-hmm. would get, have to go sit on the wall for five minutes and miss recess, you know, because they weren't supposed to throw it on the ground. They're supposed to throw it in the trash can. So mm-hmm. I would train these playground supervisors and I kind of did the same for parents too, as, as I grew in my field, but I would train these supervisors to say, how about you have them stand next to you walk around the playground for five minutes instead of sitting on the wall by themselves, <laughs> have mm-hmm. them stand next to you and have them pick up three pieces of trash they find on the ground as they're walking around with you observing, you know, and then once they pick up those three other pieces of trash, then they can go back out and play. So, you know, there was yes. like a restorative practice, you know, that was part of it of who did this affect, you know, maybe making an apology to, you know, mm-hmm. the supervisor or the parent in this case, or, you know, whoever was affected by, the the wrong choice, you know, in this case, um, you know, to to apologize and make a correction. And then, like, as you said, I think a big piece I love about what you mentioned is how could you have done that differently next time or what different choices yes. you have made instead? And I think that's such a big piece more than this, more effective than just getting a timeout and then going back in the real world with no um, conversation at the end. Mm-hmm. And uh, many people will say that's the missing piece of the growth mindset, the growth mindset saying we celebrate your mistakes, we celebrate your failures, because we recognize that through effort, your brain grows. And so they'll emphasize like, hey, it's okay, you're, you made a mistake, but we all learn from that. But the piece that's missing is what did we learn from that? So we really want to dissect that. What worked? What didn't work? What was happening? What were the variables that contributed to this situation? How can we alter that? So that is where the rich dirt is, the rich soil to train our kids is what was happening there and what can we do different? So really helpful to give them that that help, that help coaching in life so that they know I can correct this. I can repair this. And so I feel empowered. I feel capable. And I feel like I have good personal autonomy and agency in managing my life. So we all, that's helps with that. It's great. Yeah, exactly. And I, I also come, I think I may have mentioned this to you previously, but I come from a positive behavior support background. And mm-hmm. I know there was research, you know, showing that for every negative comment you say to a child, you know, give four positive comments, you know, um, and then also, you know, to notice the behavior they're doing right. Now, does that, I wouldn't say reverse shame, but if let's say, um, you know, a child gets in trouble a lot for doing something kind of more on a repetitive basis, you know, um, whatever the case may be. And let's say the parent notices when the child is not doing that behavior and comments, great job for not doing X, Y, and Z, and mm-hmm. really kind of catch them being good. Does that mm-hmm. help? I want to say reverse shame, but does that help giving focusing on the, the what the child's doing positively than necessarily focusing focusing on what they're doing negatively? Okay, so what I'm going to share with you here might blow your mind. Okay, okay. Right. because right. everything you're talking about right now is all based on our co- our complex thinking about how the child thinks about what you're doing, how they think about themselves, and so forth. But the piece that we are not, it's kind of new up and coming science is about our feeling brain, which is 25 times faster than our thinking brain. And to give you an example of this is that our, the one, there's another type of shame that I didn't mention in the beginning, which is the shame response. And the shame response is an autonomic or automatic involuntary reaction to a specific stimuli. So if we hear an explosion, we have an automatic fear response sent out with our body that will then send signals to our muscles to run, right? So it primes us to run and get out of danger. 
We're not thinking through that. We're doing. It's quick. It's immediate. It's fast. And so the shame response is similar in that if you have a strong reaction from a social group or from another person, we get an immediate um, signaling to our body that this is going to be dangerous. And so then we are primed to take the proper actions to protect ourselves. We have measured this at 15 months of age, where guilt is comes on at six years of age once we develop complex thinking. So this is without thinking, and this is weaved into our nervous system. So if a child is with their parent and the parent gets mad, has this reaction, the kid, before they can think, is going to feel this in their body. I'm bad. That's bad. And then their brain might try to understand that. You know, basically they feel, uh, they feel this is bad in my body. So that was bad to do. It's like that primal. And we then, you know, try to make sense of it. But if we can't, uh, basically whatever narrative we come up with ends up being a problem because we end up saying, well, I'm bad then, right? So the way to repair this nervous system response is through the co-regulation with a parent, which means that the parent, the child's distressed, they're emotionally dysregulated, and the parent remains grounded, centered, and can can withstand that, can be with that child who is having a strong emotion in a way that is, we have a, a feeling to us where we're bigger, stronger, wiser, and kinder. And we can hold that with that kid. We can have our authority. We don't have to make it warm and fuzzy, but we can be like, that wasn't okay. You know, come here, be with me. And you spend that relationship time. And while you are calm and grounded, it helps to calm and ground them. Just like a baby who's crying and the parent will calmly hold it, rock it, soothe it, speak motherese to the baby. You know, our voice helps us regulate our nervous system and the expression in our eyes help regulate the nervous system. So what we want to do is use our voice very instrumentally with our children. And so if the kid's upset, bring the voice down bring them into you, say, honey, you know, I'm here. It's all right. And you're, and you have that prosody of voice, that fluctuation, and that will help their little ears to take in the information that says, oh, I'm okay. This doesn't feel okay, but I'm okay. And when they see your eyes and you have a kind expression in your eyes, that will help their nervous system say, oh, I'm safe now. Versus, you know, at first when you scowl and you look at them with angry eyes, then their body gets alert, alerted. And this is important. We don't want to shield that from them. If they are really doing something that's unsafe and dangerous, we need to have that, that um, reaction that gives them that message, but not over the top, right? So it needs right. to be within appropriate to the situation. So like, we don't want to act like they kicked the dog when they spilt their milk, you know, that, I mean, that's, that is a human normal thing. It's not wrong or bad to spill your milk. And so you have to check yourself to make sure, like, is my reaction to this situation, um, does it match that? Is it appropriate for that situation? And that's where we need to educate ourselves about human development and how the brain works and children behavior and stuff so we can have realistic expectations. But what you're talking about, like, how do I heal that shame response where we've mentioned like cognitive shame, but we haven't mentioned the physical nervous system shame response. So when they do have that, how we heal is through relationship, just being with them. No words, no talking, just being with them in a calm, loving presence. And that will help soothe them. And then they'll know I'm okay. Not in their head, but their body will feel okay. And then their head will say, well, I guess I'm okay. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And it's true. And there's been times where I know I have overreacted, you know, even over some spilled milk, you know, because I've had a bad day and I don't want to clean up one more mess and I've just had enough and something happens and I will overreact. And then I will, like you said, check myself after a few minutes and a few deep breaths And I'll say, I'll go up to them, you know, I'll do, you know, with my soothing voice and, you know, give them a hug and, and I'll apologize. And I'll say, I'm sorry, mommy, mommy overreacted, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, you you made a mistake and I'm I'm sorry that I got upset. 
you know, um, because I feel like that's, uh, that's showing them good role modeling as well to, to show mm-hmm. that you can have, you know, a bad day and a bad reaction. And like you said, the, the healing part and how you um, regulate and, and make amends with them after the fact is also part of the process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's part of shame-free parenting is that we role model. It's okay to make mistakes, that we can show personal um, compassion and grace that we give to ourselves. And so then the kids see us role model like positive inner coach dialogue versus inner critic dialogue that we can tolerate our, our mistakes. And the challenge is when we have our own nervous system trauma with the new understanding of trauma, which is that our nervous system gets dysregulated and then we don't have the ability to successfully calm our own nervous system effectively. So when we struggle with that, we're going to have more reactivity to our kids and it's going to be harder to co-regulate with our kids. So part in, in our parenting efforts, we need to learn about our own nervous system and how to regulate our nervous system so we can regulate theirs. And also when, when we can regulate that nervous system, we have higher distress tolerance and resiliency. And that um, that's something that's really important to have shame resilience is that they know that I can tolerate and handle someone being angry, disappointed, frustrated with me, or I can tolerate and handle someone telling me that I made a mistake or I did something uh, wrong. It doesn't mean that it's going to be threatening. So I'm going to tell you a funny story. I had this client that I was working with and she really struggles with anxiety and she's just doing, trying to do everything so perfectly, right? Parenting so perfectly, reading all the books, doing the motion coaching, doing the behavior modification. And she has this little guy who's really, really smart and he's figured it out. And so he like will misbehave, but it's, he does okay at school, but at home, he really gives her a run for her money. Right. right. And so he misbehaved this one day and she was so upset and she firmly said, not okay. You do not do this behavior. You And, and the little boy stopped and he looked at him and said, mommy, you know that when you get angry like that, it hurts my feelings. And she, you know, she kind of checked herself because she realized I am angry. And she goes, okay, I, I understand. I am angry and mommy did get lose her control, lose her cool. And I'm sorry for that. And, and so they had this little dialogue. And so then she says, did I say the right, what should I have said? And I said to her, well, next time he does that, look at him and say, well, you can handle that. <laughs> And she was like, what? And I said, you can tell him, well, you can handle that. Mommy is angry. And I said, your anger was appropriate. He did something. I think he hurt a sibling or something. And her her anger was appropriate. She didn't scream and yell. She spoke firmly. She didn't um, berate him. She didn't call him names. She didn't belittle him. She firmly told him, stop. No, not okay. And she did separate the behavior from identity. That is not the issue. And so the fact that she's angry, if he says, well, you're hurting my self-esteem, like, okay, doesn't change a thing. And you're going to have to figure that out, kid, because in life, people are going to behave this way with us. And if every time we hold the outside world responsible to uh, nurture our self-esteem, then we're going to have problems. So we need to develop our own internal uh, regulation system where we can know that I'm okay, even when the outside world isn't okay, I can handle it. So sometimes I'll say to my clients, like, you've been here before and you got through it. Remember that. You've been here before. And and look what it didn't end up like when we're anxious, we we have that sense of impending doom and a sense of urgency. And but when we after the fact we look at it and say, wow, I felt this many times and and what I was fearing really didn't happen like I thought it would. And so I am okay. And that's what we're communicating to the kids. So, you know, sometimes we just got to teach them they can handle it and they'll yes. be okay, even with that anger. I, mm-hmm. I love that. I love that. Uh, so, okay. So keeping on that, on that topic, I want to give you a couple of examples um, that I've heard from other parents or clients and just want to see what your response would be in regards to shame. So let's say uh, you just shared your example. Let's just say 
a child is jumping on the couch. They're not supposed to because it's not safe. They could fall off, hit their head on the ground, etc. So the parent turns to the child and says, either please stop jumping on the couch because it's not safe and you can hurt yourself, you know, and give them a few minutes to, to come down and, and, and do their thing. Or would a parent go to the emotional side of it and say, please stop jumping on the couch because that hurts mommy's feelings? No, I would say stop jumping on that couch. Sit. Couches are for sitting. Sit down. Okay, perfect. We don't have to say please. We don't have to make it nice. It's, it's a firm directive. And we need to give ourselves permission to give our kids directives. You say, you know, just stop. The couches are for sitting, not jumping. Do not jump. Yes. And yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you said that because, um, like I said, I, I've, I've, you know, coached parents into saying, you know, to, to keep the emotions out of it, you know, don't say mm-hmm. that hurts mommy's feelings or that's, you know, um, going to break my heart if you do that. And it might, you know, but yeah, but not that, well, that is, that's one of the ways that we shame our kids. Um, we shame our kids by having unrealistic expectations that they cannot achieve or, or meet. And we also shame them when we reverse the hierarchy And when a mom does that, what she's doing is telling that kid, you are responsible to take care of my feelings and my behavior. And when we have a shame bound sense of identity, which means that we've merged with that message of toxic shame, we then hold ourselves responsible for other people's feelings, other people's behavior, other people's circumstances. And that's codependency. You know, everybody's talking about codependency. That is a shame based symptom that we're managing the outside world to make our inside world okay. And we learn that when we're younger, when the parent isn't bigger, stronger, wiser, kinder, and they're saying, uh, you're doing this to me. They need to know that you are in the leadership uh, position and that even if things are falling apart, you're going to lead them through that. Uh, I've heard somebody say, uh, John Gottman, who does a lot of relationship work and is known for their research with relationships, he talked about this concept that when we take, like when we work with clients, we have a well and we let them go down into the well and we're with them, but we need to remember to stay at the top of the well so that we can pull them out. And sometimes when we try to join with clients, I see this a lot on social media where Therapists will say, I too have depression, I too have anxiety, and they overemphasize. And, and then we, the general public will look at that and go, oh my goodness, if you're having a hard time, you're going through a hard thing, how are you going to be able to help me? How do I know you can do this? We need to have that sense that even though I'm, I've struggled with this, even though I'm having a hard time, I am capable of helping you. I have these tools and resources. I'm not perfect, but I can help you. And that's what our kids need to know too. It's like, even though I'm going through a divorce, I am here for you. Even though we're having a financial hardship, it's going to be okay. Giving them that sense of security that mommy's got it. Daddy's got it. We're going to, we have this covered. It is a challenge. It is hard. I am crying. I am experiencing normal emotions. And yes, I get scared, but I know it's going to be okay. And that just the kids know, okay, you're in, you're in the realm, you're driving the ship. And I don't have to worry about that. So we want to really make sure that we give them that sense of um, leadership. Right. I love that. Now let's talk about crying. Mm-hmm. I see that mm-hmm. coming up a lot, um, whether you're at the store, whether you're at someone's home, whatever the case may be, where a child is crying. And of course, I'm, I'm, I come from the side and you might be adding to this too about, you know, giving ch- children validation and, and whatnot. Um, but I'll see some parents sometimes um, when a child's crying say, if you want to cry, just go to your room. Or if you stop crying, don't be a crybaby. Or there's there seems to be a lot of shame involved in my, from my perspective. And you can tell me otherwise um, mm-hmm. when a child is crying and parents not being able to maybe deal with the crying, uh, especially mm-hmm. in public and kind of condemning them for the crying um, or yeah. shaming them, if you will. What, what are your thoughts about a response to crying? Two things come to mind. One is the way we experience shame. When we have a shame-bound identity, we hold the belief that if we're good parents, we'll have good children. If we're bad parents, we'll have bad children. And the kids will feel like a reflection of us. And unfortunately, society gives us that message. And even parenting specialists, I see this often on social media and stuff where they'll say, you know, the parent, the kids are having this behavior because you are doing A, B, and C. But there's neurodivergence. You know, if you have a kid that has sensory integration issues, their nervous system's not developing right, or they have ADHD, or they have, 
you know, some something else going on, it's not going to be reflective of your parenting. So we have to understand our children are separate from us, separate entities that we are given responsibility to help raise into responsible, healthy adults. However, um, it's not, there's so many things that go into the shaping of the kid. So when a parent is in public and a kid's crying, if that parent was given this message as a child, like crying is dangerous, let's say their, their parents said, quit your crying, I'm going to give you something to cry about, stop being a baby, that person learned to shut down crying, crying is bad. And so then when their child starts crying, they get what I call shark music, dun, 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 and they just want to like, stop it now. And that, that defensive reaction is our programming of that shame response to crying. And so then if we shut down the kid, we're doing what I call shame dumping, which is I feel uncomfortable in my body. I'm experiencing my own vulnerability as I see you cry. And I wasn't allowed to cry. I'm going to make you stop crying so that I know I can be, uh, my feelings will be comforted and I'm not fearful of the social uh, um, evaluation of you crying. So we want to heal that, heal that message that crying is bad and that children shouldn't behave a certain way in public and that they're a reflection of you and so forth. So um, if somebody's having that strong reaction, they want to work on where's that coming from? Like that emotion, was that one of the the rules I had in my original family that I couldn't feel these things. And that's why I'm having this reaction with the kid. So that that's one thing that comes to mind is, is what it brings up in us and that, that we can do some work on that. But the other thing is that as parents, we, we say way too many words and we, um, <laughs> we need to tolerate a little more in terms of like, Instead of um, like, go away, I don't want to hear you cry, because that's passing on that message, crying is bad. We need to sometimes put that behavior on extinction. So if we said, I know this, be this is, we gave them a directive, this thing is a problem, and now they're maladaptively crying. They're crying to try to affect you, affect the environment, then that's where we just stop responding to it. You know, we were present, they know we love them, we've already dealt with this behavior, the crying isn't really necessary. You know, it's more of, I want you to give me this thing. So they're using it instrumentally. And if in that event, you just kind of let them be and they'll eventually learn that that's not going to work for them. Uh, you can have them come in and stand next to you. A lot of times they'll stop because they won't want to do that. And also you can do what we call um, a paradoxical intervention where you do something that's very different than what you normally do. Because kids typically know when I do this, you'll respond like that, and then this will be my outcome. So if you do something really different, a different response, they'll get really confused, and they won't know what to do. They'll be like, uh, okay, you know, and um, <laughs> like, so let's say you turn on music or you start, you know, just doing something completely different. You're not angry or you, um, you have to get creative with this and work. And if you want some parent coaching, work with a parent coach to help you think about some options, but, um, yeah, we need to develop more tolerance and less words and use some of the behavioral strategies like extinction and so forth. Exactly. So my last example, and then we'll move on, I promise, but I just feel like <laughs> this needs to be talked about, you know, cause we want to yes. help parents. We want to, you know, I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a perfect parent and I'm, you're helping me <laughs> so yes. I know that I'm doing, you know, um, the best I can for my kids too. I think that's what all, you know, parents want to do. So, yes. um, so w would it be shame or what would be, how would a parent work through if, like you said, the, the low tolerance, yes, you know, we've covered that, but when it comes to, let's say, putting down their children and giving them the message, like you said, that they're bad. So let's say their their the room is perpetually messy. And so the parent will say, gosh, you're like a pig. You know, you're always have a messy room or they're not um, listening. And so the parent says, I mean, I, I've had I'm, I'm, these examples. I'm, I've literally heard with my own ears. So I know they're going to sound toxic. And so I apologize mm -hmm. at the time for anyone who's listening um, because they do they do sound horrible. I, I, I get that. But but they're, but they happen. It happens. So, um, you know, let's say a child's not listening and says, well, then, you know, do you not speak English? Do you not hear what understand what I'm trying to say? Um, mm -hmm. Is that just, uh, 
negative talk? I mean, would that start the shame process when, when they're hearing these negative, extremely negative messages, or let's say they, they're, you know, they're, they're being called names, things like that. Yeah. Yeah. So we shame not only through what, how we respond, but, but again, not understanding the developmental levels of their brain and their capabilities given unrealistic expectations. And part of that is when you expect them to know something and become masterful at it without being coached. So you say, make your bed, but they never really learned, weren't coached on how to make a bed. How do they make the bed according to your standards? And you walk through that with them and you make the bed with them over and over and over until you now know they have it down, they know how to do it. And then now the expectation is established. The word discipline, the original ancient, if we look at Latin and, and some of the um, original uh, makeups of the word, it means to protect and to guide, to teach. And so basically you're protecting the child and you're guiding that child. And that means that you're mentoring them. You're, they're your disciple. You're training them over and over on something until they can become a master. So we need to make sure that they have what they need to have to be successful. We want to set them up for success. If you have an ADHD kid, don't send them in the room where their PlayStation is and their TV is and all that and get their homework done. It's not going to happen. Or have them sit in a, on a table with lots of distractions, lots of noise. If you know that your child is like that, we might come up with some strategies like use noise cancellation headphones or use like a three-sided poster board that you put in front of them with the headphones so they have this little cubic cubicle that they can sit in and do their homework. Like learn what will help your child succeed. And then we adjust instead of expecting them to just know. So when somebody says, go clean up your room, well, what does that mean? Right. right. We we don't we don't break it down to well, what we mean is I want you to put the blocks in the block box. I want you to put your Legos in the Lego box. I want you. And so we leave them and they're sitting there and they're totally overwhelmed with this huge space. They have no strategy to approach it, no way to think about it. And then they just don't do it. And then we walk in and we're angry. So like, for example, a lot of ADHD folks will get really overwhelmed with cleaning. So we come up with some hacks. Like I use the hack of use a clock. Imagine the room has a clock and start at 12 o'clock. And then the one o'clock corner and the two o'clock corner and the three o'clock corner. And then before you know it, you clean the whole room. So you, you give them a strategy like let's put the clothes away first. Then we'll do the Legos next. Then we'll do the blocks. And so then they go, oh, this is how I clean a room. And now we've equipped them. We've walked through it with them and they eventually become masterful at it. But if we just think they're just going to figure it out because we clean and they'll know what that means then we're setting us all up for a difficult situation. Right. Yes. I love that. Oh, the clock thing is amazing. That is like such a great tip. <laughs> I hope everyone <laughs> heard that. Yeah, I use it. Listen to it again. That was amazing. <laughs> yeah. I use it for myself and I, you know, I have ADHD and I talk about that and I had to create a lot of these little methods. Like I won't uh, start a new project until I complete the one I'm doing. I won't allow myself to read another book until I finish the one I'm reading. If I'm cleaning, I do one room at a time, you know, so you develop these strategies to help you really uh, be able to perform the way you want to and to live well and feel like you can manage things well. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's excellent advice. Um, and thank you. I just, I know I personally, and this is maybe something I need to overcome, but I just personally get very, uh, uh, moved, I guess, um, by when I hear parents calling their children names or yeah, do not call your child a name. Yeah. <laughs> that's a, that's a dysregulated parent and it's ineffective. It doesn't work. And actually it gives you more of what you don't want. There's a general principle that what you resist persists. And what we're doing is we're telling our child who to be. So think about your child, like a canvas, a blank canvas, and your words are painting their image. Your beliefs about them are painting their image. So do you want that to be their reality? You're a liar. Do you want to paint that on their image? Instead, you say, you are honest. So what is this line? This line does not belong to you. 
you are going to be very good at school. So we need to figure out how to do this. You tell them because that will direct their focus on where you want them to go. And this is so hard for parents because we get scared and we think that if we tell them this is bad, it's going to be bad. You keep doing this. You're going to end up here. You're going to end up pregnant. You're going to end up drugs. You're going to bad. you know, like they just follow that. This is where I'm going. And they don't realize how powerful that is in shaping that person. We, we make unconscious agreements or subconscious agreements with what we hear. So the parent says, you're going to end up being a total loser. And our head goes, no, I'm not. But our heart says, oh, I agree. You do not want to make that agreement. <laughs> and then in therapy, we're breaking those agreements, you know, that were spoken over us. So use your words with the power that they have and shape that child with their, like, even though you're struggling, you will succeed. Even though you feel sad, you will, you've got this. Even though you're having a hard time right now, you are going to learn. It's going to be great. And, and so you're balancing those two things. So we really need to take our words uh, captive and really discipline ourselves. And if we are so impulsive and we get so dysregulated that we can't have that, we can't, mediate that the impulse to say certain things, then we need to seek medical care and figure out what is uh, getting in the way and why we're so impulsive and do something to just give us a little bit of room and space to inhibit those immediate quick responses that can be very destructive. Yes, absolutely. So a quick question on this, where does shame come from? Is it a multi-generational pattern that is learned from, you know, let's say the parent's family of origin, or how does a parent <laughs> respond in those ways um, that it end up shaming their children? Does that come from the way they were parented? We get, we really do get wired very much. Some of the evolutionary psychologists will joke and say, our ancestors were the most anxious of the human race. And that's why we're here today. They were so uh, hypervigilant and worried about everything that they survived, right? So we're kind of an anxious breed that has remained. And if our parents had trauma, if our grandparents had trauma, that affects their nervous system, which then codes the DNA, and then they have their children and it codes their DNA. So we can pass on certain tendencies. We can also change those tendencies through the new um our new understanding of neuroplasticity, like by learning how to regulate the nervous system calm and things like that. So that affects us. But also we have those mirror neurons. When we had parents that were angry, our brain shaped to that. So we will default a lot of times to some of the strategies that were given to us, but that's not always the case. And we need to free ourselves from generalizing that idea uh, I'm sure you've seen where there, you have people that came from really abusive households, really destructive households, and they are not. They were able to mediate that. They had insight about it, and they do not do that with their kids. And then you see other people who came from ideal situations, and they're very dysregulated and very destructive. And so it sometimes doesn't have any rhyme or reason. You know, you just go, well, in psychology, we can make all these conclusions you have good parents, you have good kids, doesn't always end up like that. You, you have to unglue yourself from the expectations that you hold, these hidden expectations and these unenforceable rules that we hold for our children that because I do this parenting for you today, this is my expectation for how you're supposed to be as an adult. And when they're not, then we have a crisis. I have adult kids now and it's, you hit a crisis where you're like, well, this it wasn't supposed to be this way. You were supposed to be more resilient because I did the resilience training correct, you know? <laughs> and so there, so you're not. So what does that mean? You know? And you, you just start shaking your head going, oh, I don't understand. And psychology is always changing and parenting advice is always changing. And so I always tell parents that the biggest tool you have is your mother's intuition and do not doubt that. Don't overthink it. And don't give somebody else authority over it. Trust that intuitive gut response. And that was given to you by the journey of our ancestors. And so we, we really want to um, balance that in that way. 
I love that. It's, thank you. Gosh, that was just um, so informational. I, I I feel like I'm having my own therapy session right now. This is amazing. I'm, I'm, you're helping so many parents out there. Um, so what can parents do if they are in an unhealthy cycle of shaming their children? What advice would you have for them? Well, when I see people that are just in that, stuck in that place, it indicates to me that they have trauma. Shame, toxic shame is social trauma. And that means that whatever happened to them in their developmental history, wherever it came from, affected their nervous system. And so they're quick to get angry and they have a hard time regulating themselves, hard time bringing themselves back into rest. And so we need to then do body work and do some therapeutic work to help heal our nervous system and and mediate that to figure out what's going on and to equip us too to understand our children better. Uh, a great example I love to use is the concept of metacognition, which is the ability to think about your thinking. And that develops over time, but mostly we start to see this in pre-adolescence time that their brains are starting to go, oh, this is bad. I shouldn't do this. And you know, it kind of starts around seven, gets stronger as they shape up towards 14. So when a parent sits with a three-year-old and says, I want you to think about your thinking, they look at you and they're like, uh, I'm like, I, I don't know. What do you want me I to say? You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They don't know. They can't do it, but we're expecting them to. And so then when we say, okay, what do you have to say for yourself? And like, I was bad. Yeah. You know, and, and then we assume that they put it together. So then the next time they do it, we think, how many times do I need to tell you this child? Well, that's the problem. You're, you don't tell them. You have to shape it. And so we need to um, educate ourselves and learn about the human brain, learn, learn about child development, learn positive parenting strategies, learn about attachment theory. And, and there's so many resources now about it. And really um, free yourself from holding yourself to this, your own unrealistic standard that you should do it perfect. And if you do it perfect, your kid's going to be perfect because there isn't any guarantee with that. We all have our own disposition. I remember I role modeled for my daughter so much how to have body acceptance. Like I, I um, reject diet culture and I'm all about no body shame and I have my own journey with that. So I always um, talked positively about myself and my body. I didn't talk about weight. I didn't talk about food. I, you know, did all this stuff to really help her feel so grounded and know she is just perfect the way she is. And, and then she hits middle school and all of a sudden she's absolutely obsessed with her body. And I'm thinking, child, child of mine, we were not supposed to be doing this, right? <laughs> like I, you're supposed to be that kid. <laughs> yeah. You're supposed to be that kid that's like rocking your stuff, regardless of society, regardless of body, you reject, you know, whatever. It's like, uh-uh. She was so affected, like obsessed with her looks and all this stuff, no matter what I did, what I said, how I role modeled. And I saw this, this is just one example, but I saw in so many examples with my children. And I remember people coming to me with my daughter and saying, oh, you're so, your daughter's so amazing. You must be amazing parents. And I'm like, oh, thank you. And then they, they go, my son, and they say, is everything okay at home? Are you guys going through divorce? Is there been trauma? You know, <laughs> and I started like, because of him, like they were thinking I was this just, you know, I had some really negative household situation. Both had same parents, both had same situation, different kids. His behavior was different than her behavior and it didn't reflect me. So we want to free ourselves from this mindset that it has to be this way if I do it right. Just be the best you can be and be open to how the outcome is and know that it, there's a lot involved to um, the child. We don't want to personalize our child's exercise of free will. They will have their own free will. Do not personalize it. Do not personalize their neuro, their neuroanatomy, their brain, their body, their chemistry. Um, it's just, it's complex. So we just do the best we can, learn, grow, and it's a process. It's not an end result. We're, and build the most important thing is to have that relationship where you're present with your child. Your child knows that you unconditionally love them and value them. And they learn that not through words. They learn that by you being present 
and being with them and protecting them and saying no to them and guiding them and teaching them and all those things. Absolutely. That's just beautiful. And you are so brilliant. I I just, I love everything you've said today. Um, I want to just ask one more question to leave everyone with some hope, even more hope than you've just gave in your, in your last answer, but how can we heal from unhealthy shame? Um, what's, what's some hope that we can give all the parents out there of how they can might heal their own unhealthy shame, or if they have been in an unhealthy cycle with their own children, how um, everyone can heal from that. Yeah. I find that most of my work, I'm normalizing the human, the human experience with people. We have forgotten what is normal. Like it's normal to be, to grieve and be sad when someone dies. It's normal to be angry when, when somebody violates your boundaries, you know? And so we have to kind of reassess these rules that we have for ourselves in our lives and really learn about, uh, what, what do humans go through? How do we journey? What, what is really happening in this world? And, begin to free ourselves. Like don't have rules about emotions. There's nothing wrong with emotions. All emotions just are. What is the problem is how we respond or react to the emotions. So we have to be equipped and learn new tools and new ways to do it. And that's where you get people who can equip you or help you with that by reading books or learning from sources online or working with someone one-on-one. You're learning about, okay, Am I thinking right here or is this my history is this? What components of that shape this belief system of, of me? And I, I tell people, our hit, we don't go to the history to shame and blame. We go to it to see where it got shaped, what worked, what didn't work, so that we can rewrite what we need to rewrite and correct some of those agreements that we made so that we can free ourselves from these uh, concepts that are holding us back. So it, it is a life journey. I, I am going to learn how to be shame-free until the day I die. <laughs> and every morning I wake up and it's an opportunity to do it again. you got to have a one day at a time mindset and support yourself in that. Just know that being human is hard and we're all doing the best we can with what we have and with what we know. And we just, uh, we just continue to grow. And as long as we desire that, as long as we set the intention for that, it will flow and we need to trust that process. Yes. Oh, I love that. Dr. Sean, where can people find you for more information and to get in touch with you if they want to be? Yeah. Come to my website, which is drshawnhorn.com. Uh, my, I'm also on YouTube at Dr. Sean Horn. I'm Dr. Sean Horn everywhere. So my handle, my handle is D-R-S-H-A-W-N horn like the trumpet. And it's on, I'm on um, YouTube, Instagram, TikTok, and LinkedIn. Um, I don't do Twitter so much, but uh, come to my Instagram, sign up on, on my bio. I have a link. You can sign up on my website. And then once I start uh, launching some content, you'll, you know, the listeners will receive that and uh, we'll learn and grow together. I love that. Well, thank you again so much for being on here today. And thank you for all of the wisdom and advice you've given everyone. Um, And I hope they reach out because you have so much more to share. And um, I, I just love learning from you. So thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. I can't wait to have you back for more. Make sure to subscribe to the Parentologist podcast so you don't miss an episode. And make sure to tell your friends. This podcast is not intended to be a replacement for therapy. If you or someone you know is in crisis, please call 911.